Hello and welcome to the November edition of Sounds Jewish. I'm Jason Solomons. In this show, we'll be looking back on those eight days of conflict between Israel and Gaza, what Israel called Operation Pillar of Defence. Even though many more Palestinian civilians than Israelis lost their lives, the fear and anguish was intense on both sides. We look at how it felt for ordinary people in an Israel under threat. And we speak to a blogger who witnessed life in the shelters. The ceasefire has been called, and as we speak now, heeded. But is this just a brief respite, or could it signal a new direction for Israeli-Palestinian relations? And what's the impact on British Jews when conflict breaks out in Israel and Gaza? Is there a battle here, fought on the pages of the newspapers and in protests on the streets? This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. This month I'm joined in the studio by Ian Black, the Guardian's Middle East editor, and by Mark Gardner, Director of Communications for CST, the Community Security Trust, which monitors anti-Semitism here in the UK. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. Together we'll be assessing the impact of the news from Israel and Gaza, which dominated the front pages and bulletins for so much of November and which has, for now, quietened a little. But the meaning of the confrontation is still very much being digested, both here in the UK and in Israel. So what was the mood like on the ground and in the shelters during those eight days of Operation Pillar of Defence? Earlier we spoke to Jessica Steinberg, a journalist who blogs for the online news site Times of Israel. What was life like in Jerusalem, and particularly in the cosmopolitan Tel Aviv, when the sirens sounded? We were all in touch with various people back home in Jerusalem. You know, where were you? What, where were you when it happened? Where did you go when it happened? Did you make it inside? Did you not make it inside? And of course, the, the rocket fell in a field in the, in the Gush Etzion settlements outside of Jerusalem. So it didn't come near a house. It didn't come near any people, but there is that shock of knowing that a siren has gone off. And the siren, as people might have heard in different accounts, sounds very different than the siren that goes off in Jerusalem before Shabbat begins, before the Sabbath begins. It's a, a very loud siren. It's, um, it resonates. You cannot ignore it. You cannot think that it's something else. It is clearly a siren that is signaling get you know move away from whatever it is that you're doing and go some and go to a safe spot and you hear all kinds of stories about a woman in a car with her two kids in Beersheba and the siren goes off and she stops her car and gets out to get her kids out and the man in the car in front of her runs to help her because he's alone and he sees that she has two kids in car seats that's the story that kept on resonating throughout the week, happening in different places, whether it was happening in the south or happening in Tel Aviv, or as it happened several days later, again in Jerusalem. Even when there is a serious risk, people are are using their iPhone and taking videos of the rockets coming in and being intercepted by the Iron Dome. It's not that they're not worried about their safety, it's that they're learning to live in a, under a certain and particular kind of situation, and de- doing it with humor is a lot more enjoyable than, than being scared and fearful. Tel Aviv has been acclaimed and written up in so many magazines and newspapers over the past few years as just the hot Mediterranean city, the city with the beach, the city with fashion, the city of finance, the city of technology. Uh, and they and Tel Avivians some, sometimes accuse, in a sense, of living in a bubble because they are never or rarely affected 
by the same political situations and scenarios that affect the rest of the country. Last week's series of rocket attacks certainly pierced that bubble a bit because all of a sudden Tel Avivians are running into bomb shelters and looking for shelter in that minute and 15 seconds that you have before the rocket lands. So I think that Tel Avivians were certainly felt this sense of, ah, voila, as, as people say, that's what it's been like in Be'er Sheva and Ashdod and Ashkelon and all the Moshavim and all the little communities in the 40 kilometer range outside of Gaza for the last several years. Jessica Steinberg talking to us on Skype a little bit earlier for Sounds Jewish with her stories of life-changing experiences inside Israel, summoning up a bit of blitz spirit. But has the political landscape changed at all? Ian Black, the Guardian's Middle East editor, what do you think? I think the political landscape of the Middle East has changed in very dramatic ways in the last two years. Everybody's heard about the the Arab Spring, the revolutions in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya. Most people are aware of the ongoing uprising and the terrible bloodshed in Syria. And one of the curiosities of this period, of course, is that the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, so a subject that so many people are fascinated by, care about, obsessed by, uh, had receded from the headlines. And, of course, what happened, I think, in Gaza uh, over the last eight days, the, the most recent chapter of this conflict, is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has reminded everybody, whatever they think about it, is that it hasn't gone away while all these other changes have been going on. And I think the, the truly depressing thing about what happened in Gaza is that another 160, 70 people have been killed, mostly, of course, on the Palestinian side. But the underlying causes that lie behind this latest outburst uh, have not been addressed at all. And the interesting question is, can they be, will they be, in the changed political circumstances of these last two years? For the moment, while they remind us that, that these problems have not gone away, while the headlines have belonged to other countries perhaps over the last couple of years, Ian, uh, there is a ceasefire it's holding at the moment and obtaining. Can you just remind us what the terms of that ceasefire are? Well, the terms of the ceasefire are really quite sketchy. There's, there's only three or four points. One is an end to... Um, Israeli attacks in Gaza. The other is an end to Palestinian attacks from Gaza into Israel. There's a third point which is important but was left very ambiguous about the opening of border crossings into Gaza. It's worth reminding people that Gaza has been effectively under a blockade for the last five years so that Israel controls all the borders except one. The other one is controlled by Egypt. And that's an important question which I think will be the subject of much discussion and I would predict much disagreement in the period to come. Now, the ceasefire, as I said, is holding at the moment. How long, how long will it hold for? As you say, it's quite a sketchy terms of the ceasefire. Is, it, is this papering over the cracks? Is this the finger in the dike? Or is, there, is it set to burst out again? I think it's almost certainly set to burst out again. Though when that happens, of course, nobody can predict. And the reason is, the, again, the, the fundamental reasons behind the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, and specifically between Israel and the 1.5, 1.7 million Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip, have just not been addressed. And if they're not, sure as eggs is eggs, we will see a third Gaza conflict, just as this was very similar to the one that ended, or began, sorry, about four years ago. The fundamentals have not changed. 
some people will say within Israel that uh, Netanyahu and the Likud uh, might uh, turn out winners. There's an election coming up uh, in January, I believe, quite soon in Israel. How much how much did that approaching election have to do with the with the escalation? And some Israelis even think Netanyahu agreed a ceasefire too early that he should have carried on. I think there's a couple of different issues there. I, I, I myself don't buy the idea that Netanyahu went to war. By the way, the first war that he has launched as prime minister, uh, a, a distinction for him, he hadn't done it until this point. But I don't believe that he did it solely for electoral reasons. The fact is, Israel does have a problem. There's no question that rockets, however primitive, uh, hitting communities in southern Israel, has been happening regularly for the last four years, is clearly a, a, a problem. And he had to do something about it. Whether that means it was wise and justified to launch this attack uh, is a different question. There's no doubt that he had a problem. Uh, people have been critical of Netanyahu. On the one hand, uh, uh, applauding the decision to, to get tough in Gaza uh, by killing the Hamas military leader. But other people have been critical by saying that he should have gone further and he should indeed have launched a ground offensive of the kind that we saw uh, uh, four years ago. But then, of course, the death toll amongst the Palestinians, 1,400 Palestinians for a very small number of Israelis, again, in that ugly calculus, uh, was much higher, and there was huge international pressure on Israel to refrain from doing that. But I think that Netanyahu will win the next Israeli elections regardless of this, because that has been the drift of Israeli politics in recent years. What about his standing internationally throughout all this? Netanyahu has benefited from his own ability to uh, be a very effective spokesman. Some people disparagingly call him a salesman, which he once was before going into politics. But he had very successfully changed the, uh, the, the content of the international debate about Israel in the Middle East by focusing relentlessly on the question of Iran and its nuclear ambitions. It's been the, the hottest issue around. Uh, at the, in parallel to the Arab Spring, we've had the story of Israel and the Iranian nuclear program. And the Palestinian issue has been very much shunted to uh, one side. So he managed to turn that around. The Iranian nuclear issue is still there. It hasn't gone away. But the Palestinian issue, as we've just been reminded, hasn't gone away either. And of course, that's much closer. And in my view, a far more existential issue for Israel and its future than any likely threat from Iran. To go to the other side, uh, where has that left Hamas throughout all this? Are they weaker or are they left stronger by the attacks on them? Well, I think in any situation like this, you know, politicians spin, political leaders spin. They like to present their, uh, their achievements in a positive light for their own supporters and constituents. And Hamas and Netanyahu are the same. They both claimed victory. I think that um, with some qualification, the Hamas claim to victory is more plausible than the Israeli claim the victory, in that Hamas has reminded people of its raison d'etre. People uh, may not know, but Hamas, the Arabic name Hamas, means the Islamic resistance movement. Its raison d'etre is to resist what they see, of course, as Israeli uh, occupation. Now, it's true that at, at cost to their own people, 160-odd Palestinians have been killed, but Hamas and the other groups in Gaza, there are other smaller groups who are more militant, more extreme than Hamas, were able to launch uh, rockets for the first time, as we heard in, in the clip from before, which reached uh, Tel Aviv in the populated heartland of Israel and Jerusalem. Now, they didn't do much damage, happily, but to be able to launch a rocket at your overwhelmingly powerful enemy uh, clearly has some kind of uh, morale-boosting effect, and that's been very much part of their calculations. And they're not going away anytime soon. 
as is the whole Palestinian issue. You're listening to Sounds Jewish from The Guardian, sponsored by the Jewish Community Centre for London. Do stay with us, because I want to bring in my other guest uh, now, Mark Gardner. Mark is Director of Communications at the CST, as I mentioned before, Community Security Trust, responsible for monitoring anti-Semitism and protecting the Jewish community here in the UK. Um, Mark, these moments of, of Middle, East, Middle East crisis with uh, Israel on the front pages uh, affect Jews outside Israel greatly. I think they're very tough times uh, for uh, diasporic Jews. Is it right that anti-Semitic attacks increase whenever Israelis and Palestinians are fighting? Is that correct? Unfortunately, it is correct. We see it in the UK, we see it in Jewish communities all around the world. Um, The statistics are collected by groups like CST and also by police forces. So statistically, the evidence is very clear. But Israel and Jews are not the same thing, so why should it be? Israel and Jews are not the same thing uh, in our minds, unfortunately, in the minds of the people who are stupid enough to commit racist attacks against Jews. Well, they are one and the same thing. I mean, what people tend to talk about, not so much the physical attacks, but um, the other criticisms of Israel that appear in the media. I know that CST says criticism of Israel is fine, perfectly legitimate. So what's the problem? The problem isn't so much criticising Israel. The problem is um, when you reach for the anti-Semitic toolkit, when you reach for those old-fashioned ways of talking about Jews in order to explain the behaviour of Israel. Just recently, you were moved to write to The Guardian itself about a, a, a cartoon by Steve Bell, who's a famous uh, cartoonist for his uh, his style and for his uh, the, the way that he offends anyone, uh, really. Uh, the cartoon uh, is of, of Netanyahu and, and, and Hagen Blair. Can you describe this cartoon, which I think you think crossed the line between politics and anti-Semitism? That is indeed what I was implying. Um, yeah, this cartoon shows... Bibi Netanyahu sat in front of a range of missiles. They're Israeli missiles. I don't have a problem with that. The flag of Israel includes the Star of David. Fine. Um, but also, he's got two glove puppets on, one of which is Tony Blair, the other is William Hague. The image of Jew as puppeteer controlling people stronger than, than themselves is just a standard, old, anti-Semitic image. Well, uh, Steve Bell himself, um, not here, uh, but he, he is saying that th- 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 this was not an anti-Semitic cartoon at all and that he's, he's not anti-Semitic, uh, but that um, that he was referring exactly to the way that uh, Netanyahu is a cynical politician and is using the uh, the opportunity for himself. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that Steve Bell's an anti-Semite. I'm familiar enough with Steve Bell's work to know that he's certainly not a racist and that he's not an anti-Semite. I'm not even saying that the cartoon itself is explicitly anti-Semitic. What I'm saying is there's too much anti-Semitic resonance in the image. There's too much of that for it to be published by The Guardian, given what The Guardian has said in recent years about its opposition to anti-Semitism. The, the two positions simply can't sit together. I don't believe you were alone. There were 30 uh, complaints to the Press Complaints Commission. I don't know if they were all, all from Jews. I don't know how many people you know were complaining. Yeah, I mean, there was there was a cartoon a couple of days later by Dave Brown in The Independent, the, the same Dave Brown who got criticised for the cartoon of Ariel Sharon eating Palestinian babies. Um, the cartoon showed Netanyahu flying a fighter jet. Underneath the fighter jet, there were missiles. One of the missiles was Barack Obama, one of them was William Hague, and one of them was Tony Blair. And they were marked with things like, um, you know, that they were going to um, befuddle public opinion as to what they ought to think about the war. Um that's a criticism 
of Israel. That's a criticism of Netanyahu. That infers that Netanyahu has some kind of control over what these people are saying. But it's a little bit original. It's a little bit clever. It explains itself because of the words that are in the cartoon. And we didn't jump to accuse it of being anti-Semitic. Um, Ian, what, can, I, can I bring you in here as, as, as a Guardian man? Uh, with, I, with that I, I, obviously, I followed the, the, the controversy about the cartoon. I, um, I didn't uh, find it objectionable. For the, and I agree with, actually with what Steve Bell said in his defense of it. Um, I think the criticism of Netanyahu was Netanyahu as a leader of the state of Israel, not Netanyahu as a, as a Jew. I think that, and interesting your comparison with the, the cartoon in The Independent, you, you say that you found the one offensive and not the other, but I think they make a similar point, the political point certainly, uh, which I think is a legitimate one and certainly one which has a lot of resonance, certainly in the, in the Arab world, that Western countries often give really nearly always give unqualified support for Israel, as they did over this latest uh, uh, round of fighting in Gaza. So rather than see Netanyahu with the puppets of Haig and Blair as an anti-Semitic trope, I'm, I'm aware, of course, that anti-Semitic tropes exist, but I don't think that was one in this case. But I, I understand also that there is huge sensitivity. To, to my mind, this smacks of an overreaction to a cartoon which was legitimate in the context of what was happening at the time. And I, I think it's also fair to accept the cartoonist's own explanation of what motivated him. And I have no reason to disbelieve it. The thing that upsets me about the Steve Bell cartoon is that, on the one hand, you get terrific stuff from the reader's editor, who again responded really well to this cartoon and said he didn't think The Guardian, you know, that it really belonged in The Guardian. Um, Jonathan Friedland and other voices over the last year have said some really good things in the paper about anti-Semitism. And people like myself, who are kind of in a, in a halfway between the community and The Guardian, trying to speak to both and be constructive in those in those matters, um, it's just a huge setback when a cartoon like this is run. And I don't think Steve Bell would run President Obama as a chimp in the way that he used to run President Bush. So I think Steve Bell is very clever, is alert to certain aspects of, of racist imagery and avoids using them when he thinks that it's worth avoiding. On this occasion, I don't know whether he knew about the Jew as the puppet master trope or not, but I just think we're in this really weird situation and it's, maybe it's the paradox of contemporary, what's called the new anti-Semitism, whereby you have people who are avowedly racist and who are anti-anti-Semitism, but at the end of the day, don't really mind dipping into the anti-Semitic paint box. Um, I think those pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel activists who are involved in it are far, far, far too quick to twist the words of groups like CST and to accuse us of saying something that we're not saying. Far too quick to say that all criticism of Israel is described as anti-Semitic, when it simply isn't. Well, that just seems a perfect place to take a break from that theme for a moment, uh, Mark, because that mood of perceived hostility was present uh, at, of all places, Sadler's Wells uh, recently, when the Israeli dance company Batsheva performed there as part of its UK tour, very uh, well received by the critics, uh, as dance it was, but uh, there were some dissenting voices. The chief executive of the Jewish Museum in London London, Abigail Morris was there and this is what she told sounds Jewish. As I approached Sadler's Wells what was interesting was the first thing I saw was a big sort of pro-Zionist demonstration and it had a big banner saying Christians for Israel 
uh, they had a music system. They were playing out the horror and, strangely enough, God Save the Queen, which is an odd combination, and they were waving Israeli flags. And then there was a sort of police cordon, and then the next bit was a lot of very, very angry people shouting about Israel's actions in Gaza. And so some of the things they were shouting was like, we care about Palestinian mothers, as if anybody going to see Batsheva Dance Company didn't care about Palestinian mothers or children. Batsheva Dance Company, as far as I know, haven't got anything to do with Gaza. It's an international dance company. Lots of the dancers aren't um, even Israeli. And to target the people watching that dance seems to... What I felt, it really polarised you because it made it look like you were suddenly all in favour of... Um, Israeli action, whatever it was, and it was—it's just such an unsubtle way to deal with something that is a really difficult and complicated problem. But as soon as the show started, there was a sort of real tension, and you could feel people worried something was going to kick off. And at certain points, all throughout the show, people would get up and start sh- screaming. And then the house lights had to come on. And then these massive, massive bouncers pulled them out. And that was upsetting because even though you didn't want the show disruptive, it's not also nice to see people pulled out by huge bouncers. I mean, you don't, I, didn't want, I don't want there to be violence either to protesters or to anyone. But it was such a shame because there were moments on the stage of such exquisite beauty. There's clearly been never a time where dialogue has been more necessary, where people have needed to look across divides, try and break through barriers and try and really look at their enemies in the eye and try and find common ground. I personally really believe that culture is a tremendous way to do that and art. And I think that reducing it and taking it away and kind of not allowing people to even speak to each other or move their bodies in any way, I think is so counterproductive at a time when actually what we need to do is make connections and make alliances. Ian Black, I suppose there's a, there's a personal kind of reaction to a, an event that was going on in, in London, really difficult, different to a political uh, and I suppose hard news angle. But is this something that we're seeing replicated around the world? Is it, are these cultural protests something that, uh, that are on your radar as a Middle East editor? Well, there's a lot of discussion about boycott of Israel, cultural, academic boycotts and so on. My own view is that um, you have to be, if you want to register solidarity or a protest, whatever the cause, it's best to be fairly precise about it. I can't see any sense really in targeting a a dance company or a theatre or a concert or something like that. If somebody wants to boycott the University of Ariel in the West Bank, there is iron political logic uh, for doing that. And there are plenty of people in Israel, of course, who would support it too, for exactly the same reason. The uh, Israeli Philharmonic uh, were at the Albert Hall just in September, and there were uh, there were protests there. Uh, Mark, you mentioned that we're seeing we're seeing some on the football terraces uh, in Tottenham. Lazio recently had a free Palestine flag uh, there when one of the Tottenham fans was stabbed, and then that had uh, rather rather revolting uh, repercussions when West Ham played Tottenham last weekend, uh, where the chants were 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 far far more vicious and far more troubling. Um, these things are going on. Do you feel vulnerable as a British Jew at this time? That's some question to ask the director of communications at CST. Um, no, I don't. I don't feel particularly vulnerable. Um, I'm not going around scared. I'm not hiding my Jewish identity as a consequence of any of this. Um, I think that we need to keep things in context. By and large, you can lead whatever Jewish life you want to lead in the UK, or choose not to lead, which is also important. Um, so to talk about anti-Semitism as some kind of impediment to that, that I think would be wrong. Nevertheless then we start talking about the anti-Israel stuff. The anti-Israel stuff, you wouldn't say that disrupting Batsheva was anti-Semitic, and you wouldn't say that having a pro-Palestinian banner at the Lazio match 
was anti-Semitic. Nevertheless, um, how did Jews feel when they see these things, when they experience these things? How did Jews feel when they discuss whether or not to book tickets to go to some kind of Israeli event, knowing that there may well be a disruption to that event? So you have negative impacts against Jews, disproportionately against Jews. Ian Black and Mark Gardner, thank you very much indeed. Now, despite the political climate, Hanukkah is still around the corner and still in close proximity to its friend Christmas. A group of music aficionados in the States have found a new way of celebrating Hanukkah by turning to the past with a new album. Twas the night before Hanukkah. Although it's a double album, because when it's the night before Hanukkah, it's also the night before Christmas as well. Roger Bennett, the co-founder of the Idelson Society, is on the line from America now. What's this all about, Roger? Yes, well, the Idelson Society is a it's a non-profit work of passion uh, that's uh, 10 years old next year. It's uh, driven by a bunch of volunteers, all of us guys who collect vinyl uh, assiduously. Um, when other men go hunting um, or play golf or go to Vegas, we go down to Boca Raton in Florida, which is where Jewish vinyl goes to die. Save it. We've collected thousands and thousands and thousands of albums now. Um, all post-1940 platters, and they're kind of footprints through the post-war Jewish experience in America. This album really looks at Hanukkah, this kind of manufactured holiday, which is uh, ripped out of uh, its placement in the 1870s in America from being an obscure minor holiday. It kind of got dragged along by Christmas um, out of all depth and purpose. It was really a minor, minor thing, but post-Civil War, when all Americans wanted to be masculine, a couple of young guys decided they'd take this, what they call the dying festival of Hanukkah, make it macho. Jews could be Maccabeans too. Uh, and since then, in kind of Christmases, uh, drag, it's become the great Jewish holiday in, in Americana. And on one disc, we trace the history of Hanukkah in America musically. And then on the other disc, we um, trace the Jewish fascination and obsession with the uh, uh, with the other Hanukkah, Christmas, and, and it's an album of 20 Jews singing uh, uh, a Christmas carols from Lou Reed, the Ramones, Dylan. Come as you mentioned, has become sort of a major Jewish holiday. And in that respect, it's recognised as a major Jewish holiday by the rest of, of, of American society. So it's not just Jews who are singing Hanukkah songs either on your album. There's a Woody Guthrie song. He's, no, he's not a Jew. Yeah, but he sings it with such gusto. Hanukkah dance. <laughs> um, I mean, he, uh, he recorded a whole album of Hanukkah music in the 1940s. Tip tap toe, happy Hanukkah around you go. My little latke on your toes. Happy Hanukkah and around and around you go. Clap your hands, happy Hanukkah, clap, clap hands. My little strudler on your toes. Happy Hanukkah and around and around you go. But I think each individual has their different reasons. There's, a, there's a, one of the great cantors uh, of our parents' generation, Richard Tucker. Um, I mean, a, a stunning cantor, one of the 
um, best regarded cantorial voices of the 1950s and 60s. He recorded a stunning version of O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I think for him, it was not so much about the theological uh, holiday of Christmas uh, and the birth of our Lord, or at least I'd hope it wouldn't be. I think for him, it was more in America, there's been a, an erasing and airbrushing of the festival. And it was very much for him an American statement. Um, uh, as Lou Reed sings in his track, Holiday ID, um, he says, it starts off, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Christmas, Happy whatever you celebrate. Hi, this is Lou Reed, wishing you and yours a happy holiday season. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, or whatever it is you do. Happiness through the years to you. What's your favourite female artist on there? I think Dinah Shaw's version of the 12 Days of Christmas uh, definitely takes me back, absolutely takes me back. And there's a great uh, uh, Latino uh, singer, Flory Jagoda, who sings Oco Candelicus, um, which is um, which is a, really a stunning... Uh, eight, eight candles, that is, that is in, in, in Spanish, in Ladino. Yeah, your linguistic skills, no, no, pale. Yeah, it is Ladino. She's the master of the lost Ladino. Uh, musical tradition and a real national jewel. Brilliant. I think we should uh, hear from her. Roger Bennett, who is the co-founder of the Idelson Society and uh, a producer on Towards the Night Before Hanukkah. Thank you very much indeed. That's all for this edition of Sounds Jewish. My thanks to Jessica Steinberg from uh, Tel Aviv, Ian Black, the, the Middle East uh, editor of The Guardian, Mark Gardner from the CSD, and Abigail Morris of the Jewish Museum. Thanks too to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London as ever. To play us out, here is that wonderful track from Towards the Night Before Hanukkah from me, Jason Solomons and my producer on Sounds Jewish Sarah Peters. It's goodbye and a happy and more importantly peaceful Hanukkah to you all. Mm-hmm.